I just learned the best spell of all. What's that? Sleep. Welcome back to My Alchemical Romance. This is Eric Arneson, and I'm here today with Keith Reddy, a former Portlander who ran away to London about a year and three months ago, about 15 months ago. Um, and he has returned to us uh, a newly published author. So, uh, first of all, like Keith, you've been a member of the OTO since 2010, mm-hmm. and your book, which I guess, you know, you're... Like, are you really a newly published author? You're you're a nearly published author, right? So, like, your book is <laughs> well, it's going to press. It's got, okay, well, so <laughs> it's a, we the await the inevitable, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and it's uh, and it's called One True Spirit, Alistair Coley's Spiritual Legacy, and it's published by Ibis Press, and it's due out in December. Yeah, right? yeah, and uh, just today on Facebook, the official book launch uh, has been announced for kind of end of the year sort of celebration uh, yeah. party at Swirling Star Lodge in um, in London? Uh, in, no, in Florida. Florida? Yeah. Are they going to send you to Florida? We're, yeah, we're going to do um, cool. we're going to do Christmas in Florida. I don't know if we have any listeners in Florida, but Florida people if you're listening, go to this party. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great. So yeah, that's on <laughs> December 29th and I'll be doing a little bit of a lecture and kind of a book launch and um, just a fun time Reunion with uh, some some Florida people because mm-hmm. I'm originally from there and I started my uh, OTO career uh, in Florida, so um, it's going to be a good time. All right, I got a question. I want to I want to go back in time a little bit because like uh, before a couple days ago, I hadn't seen you in in like in over a year. Yeah. And when you left, you hadn't said anything about like I'm running away to. I'm running away to some woman to London, and I'm going to write a book. <laughs> you didn't say that. You left that part out. So then you come back, you're like, oh, I've got a book. I'm like, what? Yeah. Where'd that come from? It all kind of happened. Like, well, well, first of all, like, I'm really glad to be back here, and I'm yeah. glad to be back on the show again, and it's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you, and, too. And um, one thing I'd, I'd like to tell listeners who maybe aren't local to this area is that, you know, contrary to what... Um, popular opinion might think Portland is not just full of uh, man buns and IPAs you know it's, there's uh, one more man bun since you got back <laughs> there's, there's, it's, it's full of real live living breathing esotericists that you know like to uh, do things and, yeah. and worship in the valley of, of, of the Willamette you know mm-hmm. but still don't move to Portland <laughs> um, okay wait so so your book like I haven't actually seen a copy of it yet, but it sounds like it's big. Is it big? Um, you know, it's funny. I was just looking at the flyer for this book launch um, today, and it's got some information on the bottom, and it blew my mind. I, I don't know. I wasn't counting, but, you know, apparently uh, 416 pages and 800 footnotes. That's pretty good. That's <laughs> that's really good. That's a lot of footnotes. That's at least that's like two per page. A lot of them are just references, you know, to yeah. other 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 books and other bibliographical references. But some of them are like miniature discussions within the discussion, you know. Because you take you, up um, half the page and stuff. <laughs> and my sort of like because part of it's your dissertation, isn't it? Or based on your dissertation? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I guess for people who. Um, don't who haven't listened to your previous appearance 
you got a master's in Western esotericism from University of Amsterdam. Yeah. And while you were there, like your thesis was about Alistair Crowley. Yeah. Um, the book. Uh, so the book is uh, divided into three parts. Mm-hmm. Um, part two is the bulk of what my thesis, my master's thesis was about, okay. which was analyzing the modern development of the uh, Thelemic movement. Uh-huh. And when I say Thelemic movement, I mean um, the OTO and how it developed after Aleister Crowley's death from the early 1960s. Mm-hmm. And the thesis covered up to about uh, 1979. Okay. And uh, exclusively analyzed it from the perspective of publication history and correlating how publication and um, um, revival in the movement uh, sort of happened together. Now, what year did Curly die? 1947. Okay, so a lot of your book covers sort of a... Oh, because it's his spiritual legacy... Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and there's there's a lot of interest in that right well, now. Well, that, that's, a, that's a new development that I kind of worked with, with the title yeah. and the theme. So as part two is sort of the history uh-huh. after Crowley's death, Yeah. part one um, kind of is, is a new material that I hadn't written before. And it basically introduces the topic of Thelema, not just from a historical perspective, but on a theoretical perspective, so mm-hmm. it kind of presents the reader of what so, uh, the, the organizations, the OTO and the AA and Crowley's lifetime sort of meant, and, mm-hmm. and um, tackling very uh, um, hard questions like, is Thelema a religion, a spirituality, a philosophy, so is it all three? Is it a religion? Um, I define it as a new religious movement uh-huh. within the context of how it would be defined in uh, academia yeah um, simply for convenience as like a, an object of study um, you know this is an interesting question to me because as an outsider my view of Thelema is uh, probably not extremely nuanced but there are parts of it that seem very much more like a philosophy or like a um you know, a philosophy that involves a lot of times sort of like an occult or magical worldview. Yeah. But still like the, you know, the whole will concept that seems central to Thelema from the outside mm-hmm. is a kind of like a philosophical concept that seems to me to be like extra Thelemic almost. Like it can be applied outside of Thelema. Right, right, of course. Um, sort um, of like a lot of Freemasonry can be applied outside of Freemasonry. And this is part of... Part of uh some subject matter I tackle in the very first chapter. Uh-huh. I talk about what is philosophical about Thelema. Uh-huh. Um, because Crowley uh, expected his readers to already be familiar with people like Kant and oh, really? George Berkeley and well, like David Hume. He was writing for an upper, cra- an upper class crowd, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. For an educated crowd. Yeah, yeah. He, he kind of had some aristocratic minded sentiments uh-huh. you know and uh, expected people to be educated in the classics and um, you know obviously uh, you're right that the will there's a f- whole philosophical tradition of the will like especially in the modern era with Schopenhauer mm-hmm. and Nietzsche's will to power is an obvious precursor to you know Crowley's 
true will to some okay. degree. Okay, I uh, I'm not very familiar with Nietzsche, but I have read some Schopenhauer. It was um, not the best time of my life. <laughs> but uh, so I'm, I'm familiar a little bit with, with Schopenhauer, um, and Schopenhauer in particular. This might be a complete a complete um, departure from from where we want to go with the conversation, but like Schopenhauer seemed to me, you know, there's that that like that snide remark amongst philosophers how like all modern philosophy is just commentary on Plato. Yeah. Schopenhauer to me, I only made it maybe what's his ginormous like three volume work or two volume work. Um, um I, I I can't remember it's off the top like, of my uh, head. I'm super rich and sitting in an ivory tower, parts one and two, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, yeah, I know that he's known as the great pessimist of like modern philosophy. He seemed philosophy. very pessimistic, but he also seemed kind of like young, like he, he uh, not not like young, like but young, as in his. A lot of his stuff seemed a little undeveloped or a little. Mm-hmm. But it could just be I was reading him through the eyes of a 21st century person, um, and not very enthusiastically. So that, that really could have poisoned Well, where Schopenhauer kind of had this idea of the will to live and the will yeah. to die, Nietzsche had the will to power, um, which was a little bit more of a development. And, and Crowley's is sort of like the will to love, but not in a romantic sense, more like um, the so, will to unite yourself with, right. uh, with the world. It was a vision of love that was maybe closer to... Renaissance, like Bruno, occult love, than mm-hmm. than romantic love, right? So, it and I mean, sort of, it wasn't you know, does a, does academic philosophy really recognize Bruno as a philosopher? And that's part of a thing mm-hmm. that I sort of tackle in chapter one is that I kind of criticize the statement Thalema is a philosophy, not a religion, uh-huh. because um, in the academic sense of the term. You can't fully call it a philosophy yet because it's. What does it need? Well, academic philosophy, in the academic sense, um, has uh, precepts, maxims, uh, principles to build from, and then has this sort of dialectic in the sense that, uh, you know, Descartes and maybe later Wittgenstein kind of had, but um, it is philosophical and that it uh-huh. has this thing so I have to place it I talk a little bit about how it does have a basis for a a philosophy okay but it's not but, a complete but, philosophy but we have to kind of uh, look at it or place it within the context of um, western esotericism uh-huh. and the problem with the study of western esotericism I think it's still it, you know it's still quite a young um, discipline and this in and of itself is problematic because Western esotericism is uh, exclusively tied to history of religion right now. So it's kind of placed within the religious studies and history rather than philosophy. That doesn't seem totally... I mean, <clears throat> there's so much freaking bleed over. You know, like... Western esotericism, of course, yeah, doesn't well, exist without building on Western philosophy. Well, you and it, if you follow it back far enough, it has to. It, well, this is something that um, I do discuss and point out to some degree that um, for Western esotericism to grow, 
definitely needs to start incorporating these other things. Uh -huh. And academic philosophy has to start incorporating more of Western esotericism into its fold as well. Yeah, good luck with that. We can't just think we can't just think of Plato as just like a rational philosopher anymore. No, I mean but Socrates, as an esotericist. Socrates you know? talked to his demon. He got ideas from his demon. Of like, course, yeah. Socrates is impossible to understand without having like a metaphysics behind it that's like here's yeah. Okay. Right. Hold on. All right. Now, let's take a let's take a little break. To yeah. talk about where we are. Yeah. We're in a vault at we're, Hopworks. Yeah. We're um, at uh, one of my old favorite stomping grounds when I lived here. I'm really glad to hear that. Like, you know... Um, this is one of my favorite is, breweries. Yeah, mine too. This is the third episode I've record, recorded here. Not in the vault, but every other time, like, we've sat out there and looked at the vault and been like, we should be recording there. Um, so I'm glad <laughs> that I remembered having that feeling before. Because the sound in here is, is well, great. Like, it's going to sound... I don't know how it's going to... And it's a perfect... Um, environment for you know talking about esotericism oh yeah cold you know we're in, a, we're in a vault we have, uh, <laughs> only four <laughs> i was hoping that i mean we got these angles here right did these count six sides on the we're, bench yeah it does yeah we're like six sevenths of a rosicrucian vault are there seven sides in there yeah we're surrounded vault? by uh by the six-sided yeah. angular uh if only that shape. was that was facing north it could be like this um, vision of uh, escaping through the uh, celestial pole <coughs> and we the, have a circular window too you oh know, yeah it's behind the, you <laughs> have you have you ever read the um, you've read the Rosicrucian Manifestos so you know in uh -huh. the, I think it's in the first one the Fama is that the Fama that's the first one they have the description of Christian Rosenkreutz's vault yeah um and you're reading it and you're just like, oh, that sounds so spooky. And then it talks about how in the center of the ceiling is one eternal light. And I'm like, oh, it's an incandescent light bulb. That's the first <laughs> thing I thought when I read it. And I've thought it ever since. I'm like, I'm like, all these super, these ridiculously superstitious Christian mystics climbed down into this vault, saw a light bulb and got scared. <laughs> yeah, it could have been, um, you know, maybe they were jumping ahead in time. You yeah, know, like a, a TARDIS. A, yeah. <laughs> Kristen Rosenkreutz's uh, tomb was actually time machine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the reason that I wanted to come here, aside from recording in the vault, is um, yesterday was the annual release of Abominable, which is the Hopworks Winter Ale. Yeah, and which I, that'll is, be my next one. Right oh now man. I'm drinking the Pilsner. I'm just I wanted something kind of light and refreshing. What do you think of it? How does it compare to the beer in London? Um, the beer here in Portland is. Um, I don't want. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, upset any British. But well, uh, I, you know, I'm I'm quite gotta, partial to the beer here. You yeah, know? it's good. I mean, you know, we've got fresh ingredients and one thing you don't get here, uh, or in the rest of the United States for that matter, is the delicious cascales that you get in Britain. You do in some places, um, but yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty few and far between. But there have been there are a few places that do cask conditioned beer. In fact, these guys. Um, in the winter, especially, they'll have they'll have a little cask up there with some beer that they've been aging in the cask that they serve right out of the cask. Please silence your cell phones. <laughs> uh, I've got a lot of messages. I'm at the bar. That's you. Yeah, everybody wants to uh, message you once you're. Um... Yeah, once you're recording. <laughs> <laughs> Do not disturb. All right. 
Um, yeah, so uh, I feel like the last time I recorded here might have been the last time they released one of these, but um, maybe not. Anyhow, Abominable is a winter ale, and I guess winter ale isn't a real style, so this is what I would describe as kind of like a really malty, strong IPA. Not totally a double IPA, maybe mm. like a really hoppy amber or something, like... I saw on the board it was like 7.3%. Yeah, it's kind of strong, Yeah, that, uh, which is one of the reasons I like it. That's the other uh, thing about Portland beer is um, I get overwhelmed with the, the, AB, yeah. the, the, the ABV, you know? Well, the, it's it's like an arms race. A lot, so <laughs> it, the, the microbrew industry is totally filled with these sort of arms races where somebody will be like, I've got the hoppiest IPA ever. And then somebody else will be like, mine's better, mine. And so they just ramp it up and now IPAs like your average IPA they've mellowed out a little bit mm-hmm. but they're so hoppy yeah and with with the uh, strong ales it's the same way like somebody's like oh I've got an IPA that's like 6.5% and then they just were like so now you've got double IPAs and triple IPAs so this is pretty high on the IPAs ABV level but I wouldn't call it a double I don't know if they how they describe it Luckily, they left us this beer list. Well, we should say something about Hopworks in particular. Um, yeah. It's a, an independent brewery. It's quite small. Uh, I think they have a... Oh, it's f- actually pretty big now. Oh, really? Yeah, they have yeah. three locations now, actually. Yeah. One uh, in Washington State now. One in, yeah, one in Vancouver, Washington, one in North Portland, and then here. Yeah. Um, and, and for, I guess... And here is Southeast Portland. Yeah. They're small, but they're big for a... Um, microbrewery, right. I guess. Right. But they're not, like, Deschutes-sized. And they're really environmentally friendly mm-hmm. driven. Yeah, they're a B Corp, which is, um, which is environmentally... I don't remember all the details of it, but, um, but basically they, they try to be as environmentally friendly as possible, and that includes... Well, they're waving flags of Cascadia. You know, oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that they're rebels. Yeah. <laughs> And for those listeners who don't know what Cascadia is, it's kind of a bio-regional identity yeah, movement. It is. Uh, it that, that covers... That, yeah, everywhere where the Douglas fir grows yeah. on the Pacific coast. Which so is, down I to, like, mostly, northern California. Yeah, and all the uh, way up through BC. Yeah. 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 Pseudo-tsuga. Pseudo-tsuga? That's Douglas... You know, Douglas fir isn't a real fir. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, it's a big, it's a beautiful pseudo-fer. trees. Though you smell oh, yeah. them everywhere. Oh, yeah, they're all over the place. Yeah, actually, I was reading online that um, Doug fir are kind of a problem right now because they are so good at growing that they're sort of <laughs> taking over everything, um, and they're and they're reaching like they they're like across Idaho and into the Rocky Mountains and stuff now, um, which is kind of nuts. I am Groot popped in my yeah. Right, so I want to, like, okay, so so Lima as a philosophy, like, you mentioned that Crowley expected his readers to be kind of familiar with Kant, familiar with, like, Schopenhauer, and sort of, um, so modern philosophy, right? Like, he Mm -hmm. expected his readers to be familiar with modern philosophy. Mm -hmm. Now, he was also uh, post-spiritualism and uh, post-theosophy. Like, both of those have been introduced and introduced to England, so he was familiar with all of that stuff. Yeah. How much... Oh, and of course, uh, he he went through lots of Golden Dawn stuff before he developed Thelema, right? So he mm-hmm. joined, what year did he join the Golden Dawn? Uh, 1898. And then Thelema sort of came around in 1904-ish? 
uh, the what initiated the movement, I would uh -huh. say, was the um, the reception of the Book of the Law in Cairo in 1904. So the Golden Dawn fell into schism in 1900. Oh, so the Golden Dawn was crumbling, or or crumbled. It had crumbled by then. Okay. The original inception right. of it. So you had like the all the other little bits like the Alpha, and Omega, and yeah, and stuff kind of spawned off afterward with uh, with Wade and um, um, uh, Yeats, yeah, William Butler Yeats, and, and uh, okay. these guys tried to put it back together. But the original inception of the Golden Dawn, which had uh, begun in 1888, yeah, 1888. But that's when they chartered themselves, right? right? Right. But um, those three Woodward, Wolcott, Westcott, Westcott, Woodward, Westcott, and Mathers. Like yeah. they had been buddies for a while by that point. Yeah, but um, those first two you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, had either died or were forced to sort of back away because oh, of professional. Right. Well, uh, Woodward died early. Woodward died, and Westcott was a um, was a coroner. Uh, in, in London and uh -huh. um, basically when it was found out that he was part of some like you know Weird spooky order <laughs> called order um, he basically had to choose between his professional life and his association with hmm. the Golden Dawn that's interesting I am surprised to, to my understanding that. of history okay um, yeah I guess uh, I've read I've read a little bit about that period of time in England um, and it's really bizarre how uh, how inundated like um, English culture was with all of these different new religions or new movements, new religious yeah. movements. Um, That's why they call it in um, Western esoteric discourse the occult revival. You know. Ooh, happy hour. Yeah, nice. All right, I'm ready for a beer. Yeah, I want to do something different. I think I'm going to try this one because you just uh, <laughs> you just released it, right? Choice, yeah. And what's so you have another one up there that I hadn't tried yet that. Uh, Something about a truck? Uh, robot truckers. Robot truckers. Yeah, it's a hazy. It's a, it's a yeah. hazy. You want to give cool. it a taste? Um, I'll wait. This thing is, is murdering my palate right now with its incredibleness, so I have, yeah, to, I have to let it know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Um, Ferocious Citrus is oh, another yeah. one. Oh, like, had, I love had, some of these names, man. It, I, don't, I can't remember when it happened, but I feel like it was um, maybe within the last year. It might have been within the last two years where they totally revamped everything. And they redid their IPA. They yeah. redid sort of their yeah. Um, this used to be Hop Hopworks Lager, mm -hmm. and they realized it was more like a German Pilsner. So yeah. now it's called Hopworks Pilsner. Right. They did. They redid a ton of stuff. They but they um, they changed up their whole grain bill. They sort of reevaluated like their beer lineup, mm -hmm. um, which I think is good. I think uh, I think one of the things that happens when a microbrewery's been around for a long time is people get bored because there's so much stuff going on. Um, and a good example of how a brewery can try that and fail is like Bridgeport. Bridgeport might be doing okay mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. but nobody ever goes to Bridgeport thinking that they're having amazing beers on tap. Mm. They're all like, oh yeah, Bridgeport IPA. I don't I've think I ever went to Bridgeport years. when I was here. Yeah. I've had their beers before, yeah. but I never yeah. went to the brewery. Yeah, they're one of the they're one of the old ones. You know, I mean, Bridgeport's been around. They're possibly the second or third microbrewery in Portland after mm. Woodmere. Um, but I honestly, I don't know the exact timeline, but but now their beer is sort of looked at as kind of who's the who are the ones normal. that who's the one that makes the killer stout? Uh, they're downtown. Um, 
I don't know. Um, there's a lot of killer stouts there. there. They make a really good stout yeah. here. Um, yeah, actually, um, that veggie slice sounded really good. It's, yeah. Did you see the veggie slice? It's like gravy fries and mushroom fries pizza. And it's like a poutine pizza. You don't put cheese curds <laughs> on it, though, do you? I don't think there is cheese curds on it, which would be a nice little choice. But yeah. <laughs> but I'll do one of those and yeah. probably, I guess, a pep slice as well. And a pepperoni slice? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm okay for right now. All right. So, let's see. Where were we? Um, well, we were talking, about the, we were talking about the Golden Dawn. Golden Dawn. Um, yeah, so I guess what I'm... What oh, I'm, yeah, this one's powerful. Isn't that great? Yeah, it's, so that's it's really the, tasty. That's the abominable. Yeah, yeah, I love this beer. I. The Winter Ale, it's got an oh, man. abominable snowman on it. You know, it does. The logo. I love this beer so much. I they Ever since they got, it, they got rid of the DOA, I've, I wait for this beer all year. <laughs> they, only have it, they only have it until like maybe February. <laughs> so one one interesting thing that um, Jocelyn Godwin and his Theosophical uh-huh. Enlightenment points out is how the Golden Dawn was like sort of a an example of what he calls the Hermetic reaction. The Hermetic reaction. Yeah, in the modern period, because okay. you have spiritualism, mm-hmm. and then Blavatsky comes around with theosophy, like, with theosophy trying to sort of counter spiritualism. Right. But she starts moving all of the ancient wisdom narrative uh-huh. to the Far East, and the mm. and basically with the Hermetic, um, is it the, called the Hermetic Society or uh, which group? Because um, you had the with Edward Maitland and um, so the HB, HBL Hermetic Brotherhood. Of Luxor. Well, that one too, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. Uh-huh. And then the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn were sort uh-huh. of these uh, reactions. These reactions saying, act, no, no, the, the ancient wisdom isn't in the Far East, like Blavatsky's uh-huh. saying. It was right here in Egypt, oh, and then uh, went into Judaism and Christianity. Um, well, there was a lot of stuff going on with Egyptology. Um, cause it was in it like 1841 when the Rosetta Stone was mm-hmm. uh, finally deciphered, and they started actually being able to get. Yeah. All of this material and translate it. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the most amazing things about the Golden Dawn in that sense is they were the first people to really reintroduce uh, real Egyptian stuff back to the world. You know, I mean, they, you know, in a in a religious or mm-hmm. magical sense, like they brought all this stuff out. Yeah, there uh, was a lot of there was a lot of discoveries in Egyptology yeah. in this period, classics and and a lot the, of the golden. Bo was, um, you know, oh, yeah. a part, part uh, of this. James Frazier. <laughs> yeah, which Crowley was hugely inspired by. Yeah, um, he was. It was a big inspiration for him. One of the major works for him. Yeah, one thing that I really would like to know more about that I've been meaning to look into is like before Frazier, sort of the biggest thing about comparative religion that had come out was um, uh, Godfrey Higgins' Anacalypsis mm-hmm. in like the late eighteenth century. Mm-hmm. Which I've looked at and decided that I wasn't going to read. Because <laughs> it's like humongous. Some of this stuff is so wrong. verbose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I've avoided that. But I'm curious as to how much uh, Higgins influenced uh, Frazier. Because um, I think even Frazier himself, like, he's not used a whole lot nowadays. Like, he's kind of. He's kind of been overshadowed, or, or 
I think I think probably maybe one of the big criticisms of him is he's very Anglo-centric. Yeah, um, during this sort of classicist explosion, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's kind of like the Orientalist. You know, they were all mm-hmm. like trying to find some exotic, you know, sort of thing. They were all like enthralled by by the Far East because no, you know, no Westerners hadn't really been over there doing stuff before. Right. You know? Yeah. And then uh, during the colonial period of India, you know, they were just like so um, remarkably impressed with like this exoticism, so to speak. So, yeah. You know, um, it, it was kind of a strange sort of uh, Western centric kind of. But it's also like orientalist kind of thing, you know, and and the and the classicism, mm-hmm. the, the classicist with like like Fraser is kind of the same thing. It's it's old scholarship now, mm-hmm. you know. It has its place in history, but it's it, it's kind of like depth psychology now. It's not really taken very seriously yeah. by uh, by psychologists today. So it's interesting, yeah, but it's not considered real psychology, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of like William James. <laughs> oh my God! Speaking of which, I just realized, or I just found out the other day, William James and Henry James, the novelists, mm-hmm. are related. They're like brothers. Oh, yeah. okay. Isn't that weird? <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> sorry. All right, so um, all right, so so then Crowley had a lot of influences going on. Like mm-hmm. there was. Um, mm-hmm. This new stream of Eastern knowledge that had been kind of like seeping into culture. You had Egyptology, yeah. like real Egyptian stuff coming in that yeah. had been sort of like modernized and magicalized by the Golden Dawn. Yeah. You had, uh, you know, the Hermetic Reaction. I'm using finger quotes. The yeah. Hermetic Reaction. Yeah. Um, that was sort of like asserting this Western. The, you know, a Western ancient Eastern wisdom narrative. Yeah, ancient wisdom narratives. But you also had uh, the psychological school of magic, which which began probably like in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, with uh, the New Thought movement and Christian Science, which yeah. led into stuff and like psychical the research too. Psychical we can't we research, can't forget yeah. that. I mean, Crowley was, um, he was running in those circles for yeah, a while yeah. uh, in London, and um, you know. That was, that was a thing, too. You know, this is a, another thing that happens in the modern period is mm-hmm. um, scientific rationalism uh, starts... Uh, yeah, the worst it, idea it, we've it, ever it, had. It, it, starts, it starts threatening um, religious narratives. Yeah, in a weird but way. But at the same time, what the occultists do uh, in the modern period is they, they find a way to negotiate science mm-hmm. and religion. Well, because Crowley had this whole theme, didn't he? Like, he he wanted... Uh, okay, I'm probably going to be way off on this, so correct me when I get wrong. Mm-hmm. But didn't he want to use some sort of scientific method or some sort of scientifically rational approach to magic? Right. Call it scientific illuminism. Scientific illuminism. Mm-hmm. Oh man, the, uh, that's what I want my magic the, submarine to the run on. The method of science and the aim of religion, yeah, which was on the front right. of uh, the inception of the Equinox, which was his publication mm-hmm. uh, that announced, that formally announced um, the new the, Aeon, the AA. Oh, the AA. The existence of the AA, and for those listeners who aren't as familiar with kind of this development. 
When the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn fell into schism in 1900, uh, Crowley saw this as basically that where there was a, a spiritual connection to these non-temporal adepts mm-hmm. uh, called the Secret Chiefs, it was lost when the schism happened. And by reestablishing, by having the reception of the Book of the Law, and thus reestablishing the link to the Secret Chiefs, uh, he formulated the AA along the lines of the original Golden Dawn curriculum, but added a bunch of uh, uh, Eastern um, philosophy as well, like okay. Buddhism and right. Hinduism, along with all the Hermeticism. So the Equinox was sort of this journal that had a collection of writings and poems and short stories and everything from the people that were himself and the people that were helping him to sort of help reestablish the uh, what he I think he wrote in the confessions you know to reestablish the ordeals and, and truth and its spirit or something mm-hmm. like this you know um, so. And when when did uh, when was the first ep- uh, issue of the Equinox? Um, was it 1906? Oh, so it was no, no, no. I'm sorry. Nineteen. It was as late as 1909. Yeah. I think it was 1909. And that was before Curly took over the OTO, right? I don't remember what year that happened. That was in the oh, 1910s? That was, that was in uh, 1912. 1912. Okay, so he established the AA. He didn't take over the OTO in 1912. He was administered uh, uh, a 10th degree of, okay. of the Eng- English-speaking uh, OTO. country. Well, in, uh, But wasn't it Theodore Royce who... Royce was... Uh, there was Carl Kellner and Royce. Okay. This is a whole different current for those right, right, uh, right. listeners that don't know. But <laughs> right. the so OTO we, we was originally the, yeah. opened up as a Academia Masonica, some something which was a really big thing. And they were chartered then. through Jonathan Yarker's Memphis Miserum. Right, 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 right. Well, this was a bad th- joke. <laughs> This was a big thing in the late 19th century, was um, collecting a whole bunch of Masonic degrees and rites and putting it all in sort mm-hmm. of one yeah, kind of study a, study area. A clump, which would be called a rite, R-I-T-E. Yeah. Um, hence, I really see the joke. <laughs> <laughs> now I get it, yeah. okay. Um, I wasn't quite there yet. Yeah, but. so, and Yarker, Yarker, uh, we, we shouldn't get off on Yarker, but he was great at that. Like, he had tons of them, but, but uh, the OTO... He's probably a controversial figure in the Masonic world, to some degree. Um, he's kind of ignored most of the time now. Um, I mean, he was a heavy hitter, I know. He was a heavy hitter for a while. He got kicked out of mainstream masonry at some point, and, but, but I mean, through him, and because of him... It expanded quite oh, a, quite a deal, and he he also saved and saved and collected tons of awesome you know ritual material that that we wouldn't have had without him. Right, but um, but that's aside the point. So I think last time we had you on, we talked a lot about the AA and the OTO and the relationship between them. Yeah, but I think what we never really got into is sort of like, which I think so. Your book sort of covers a lot of the the timeline, the history of 
of Crowley, and then. So yeah. Um, oh wow! Yeah. Poutine pizza. Can you believe it? <laughs> you need anything else with that? Um, I'll go for that truck. The yeah. mid, you know, the one we talked about before. Yeah. Robot truckers. Robot truck. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe some parmesan. Listeners, you have reached the middle of the show. I'm very excited about this. I just want you to know uh, talking to Keith was so cool. It was great to have him back in town. I want to remind you, as I have been every show, that My Alchemical Bromance is now funded by you, our listeners, and you can fund us through the Arnomancy Patreon campaign, which you can find at patreon.com slash Arnomancy. Just $1 a month is all you need to do to help us continue recording. And now, back to our show. We're on to our next beers. Now. We're, we're on, Part yeah, two. well, I'm doing the abdominable. And <laughs> uh, by, uh, by the way... Um, it's a strong beer, huh? Yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, if um, no one's ever had gravy fry pizza... Yeah. That was, a delicious, that was a delicious slice of pizza. It it's a gravy so base. It's so weird. It sounds so weird. <laughs> it's a gravy base with uh-huh. fries and for the London yeah. listeners, chips. Well, they were more like potato... They were like potato chunks. wedges. Yeah. yeah. What do you call a potato in London? Is it an earth apple? <laughs> I don't know. I've never heard that. What is an earth apple? Every other language, except for like German, where you have you have a kartoffel. You know, in, um, in Dutch you have an aardapfel. Uh, in, um, in French you have a pommes de terre. In, I thought in Dutch it would be like... <laughs> I love Gezelikus. <laughs> it's um, so cozy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm drinking the Robot Trucker, uh, which is a which is a hazy IPA. So Hopworks is hazy as in cloudy. Looks like it's um, yeah something's in it. It's a new it's a new style of beer. Um, it's probably maybe it's actually popular since you left. You know, you left, and all the brewers like Keith is gone. Let's do this new thing. Yeah, probably. Uh, but it's because uh, I'm like really simple. I like Pilsner's. It's a n- northeast style IPA yeah. that has wheat in it. A northeast style, as in like northeast Portland. No, as in like <laughs> uh, the other Portland, you know, in Maine, okay. <laughs> not the one in England. Um, but uh, so it's it's a. It's a beer that where the hops are there more for flavor than for bitterness. You get a lot of like interesting fruit notes. Like this mm-hmm. one, I would say. It's got like citrusy things. Maybe like some lemon or some sweet lemon. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't go so far as to call it orange. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, it's a totally different style of IPA. I really like them. I think they're really good. I think that's the thing uh, that I like IPAs, but mm-hmm. I have one maybe in a city. Yeah. Because there's just so much citrus in it a lot oh, man. of the time. They can be a little you know? overpowering. Yeah. Like a lot of grapefruit sometimes, especially, especially when they're like... like... I can't imagine a Florida boy really uh, going for the strong, bitter beer. You want something that makes you feel like... Yeah, man, I like Budweiser. No. <laughs> Not really. I don't like Budweiser. <laughs> this is the near worst. water. <laughs> uh, okay, so we um, sort of stopped talking. Of, we we were 
before the break, we were in the 1910s. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to jump ahead. I want to yeah. jump ahead so that we can talk a little bit about stuff like... Like, like what the what, book is actually about. Yeah, what did the Thelema start to look like after Crowley was gone? So he died in 1947. Yeah. But, uh, but Thelema is still going strong today. Yeah. And it's evolved. Like, Crowley... How how did that go? Part of the thing, the reason why it's called Aleister Crowley's spiritual legacy is uh, my attempt was not to just write a history, but to write how um, what he put forth is still a thing today, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, how it developed into that. And it nearly fell apart after his death, you know. Really? Um, there were a number of things that, like, uh, a number of elements that kind of contributed to helping it go along, but in a sort of slow-moving manner. You know, a lot of, like, uh, cultural conditions, mm-hmm. like the post-war, post-war Europe and the United States, uh-huh. you know, really affected it. Um, the counterculture movement really helped breathe life back into uh, Crowley's work, uh-huh. and um, and then you know everything that happened after that. You know, uh, even in the 1980s when the OTO was trying to get back on its feet. You know, this is the time when the Satanic Panic kind of happened, and it didn't do it didn't do the OTO any favors back then. They should have tried not wearing all black. <laughs> That's the temple of Set. <laughs> I have met a lot of Okio people. You're the only one I've met who wears colors. <laughs> There's all, you know, the great thing about OTO, if I can, like, go off on a tangent real quick, is um, everyone I meet in OTO is, like, so different. Yeah, you know, that is you have, true. You have, like, kind of the academic nerd types, you know. You have, like, parts of the pagan community mm-hmm. interacting. You have kind of the... Uh, the acid hippie burnouts, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you even get them. Uh, but you have a lot of different people, man. I mean, yeah. Uh, it's. Uh, you know, weirdly enough, the other OTO guy that I've spent this much time talking to about OTO stuff is probably Lon Milo Duquette, and he's nothing like you, which is great, right? Like you yeah. guys are both super smart, but uh, but it's just like his philosophy. Yeah, I, I like that. I like the variety. I do enjoy the variety. That's one thing that I. But okay, but we still haven't answered the question. So yeah, Thelema nearly fell apart. Right. How do you you don't say Thelema like Thelema? You say Thelema. 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 Okay. All right. I'm pretty sure there's a bar over that epsilon. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. So after Crowley died, you know, his name successor, Carl Johannes Germer, uh-huh. who was uh, oh the baby food guy, a German. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he ate apricot and. Uh, <laughs> um, Germer was an interesting character. You know, he was uh, a, a a German-born um, guy that Crowley met in 1925. Mm-hmm. A uh, very devoted uh, member of Crowley's movement, but he suffered a lot of uh, turmoil during his lifetime. He was imprisoned in a Nazi camp. Oh. Um, 
which was uh, you know two twice, not once but twice. Like during the during during the regime, yeah. Um, was it? I think in Brussels. I think Jewish. I, I think it was because he was Freemason. Uh, I think because of his association with Crowley, he was oh, also really? he was also um, imprisoned in Brussels. I think it was the second time. Hmm. But when he finally got out, he moved to the United States. He got a visa to the United States, and then he was investigated, and his house torn apart by the FBI, yep. investigating him, you know, for his association with Crowley. So it was like, you know, if it wasn't the Nazis, it was, you know, the the McCarthyisms of. Uh, can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine a a cult philosopher or whatever, however you want to classify Crowley, like a a magician, an occultist, uh, whatever, he, a, a religious leader, like. Can you imagine one of his caliber or his level of influence having so much animosity leveled towards them today? Like, now you get that for cult leaders with compounds, right? So, mm-hmm. like, David Krish or yeah. the Bhagwan Sri Rajneeshi or Jim Jones or something. Where, well, Oregon has its own history with that. The with, uh, with, yeah, with uh, yeah. Osho. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, those are all people who had compounds and were were not only like segregatory towards the world but sometimes like violent towards the outside world but Crowley was never like that yeah like he he wanted everybody to accept his philosophy but he wasn't like he had I guess he did have the time when he was pulled up in his we still can drinks in here uh yeah so. I'll probably do another one in about let me just order one now okay. you, you have a you have a stout, right? We do. Oh, the seven grain stout. Yeah, that's, that's an incredible beer. The stout is a really good one. The survival. Want to right. do that one? Yeah, please. Okay, good. I'll probably do an A bomb. No, there you go. I'll just drink this real fast. Okay, sounds good. There yeah, I, I've always liked their survival stout. It's, yeah, that thing um, is incredible. Not quite stout weather. Also, thank you for not spilling that on the recorder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but it's just so fascinating that like um, Germer ran into that problem when he came over here because. Because Crowley wasn't really a threat, was he? Well, I mean, in, in the material world, at least, he may have been, you know, the, summoning trons on to his, Well, his, his one of his biggest enemies was the press, of course. You know, the press yeah. um, loved 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 to go after him, and um, his reputation never got any better with the press. Yeah, you know, once they caught hold of his. Um, libertine kind of ways <laughs> yeah uh, they, they they never let up on him and it i think part of the reason that's part of the reason why he was so popular in the 1960s in counterculture that's part because of the reason why he still has that reputation of um yeah of being a sort of countercultural figure in a way. he was the sex and drugs he was two legs yeah. of the sex drugs and rock and roll yeah 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 um so but germer was really important i mean he he might have had all these negative experiences that kind of reinforced um, a sort of attitude where that that did not want to engage in the social dynamics of the OTO. Uh-huh. So the OTO kind of languished a little bit under Germer. Okay. But what Germer did do that was very important was uh, consolidate. Our friends, there we are. Oh, oh, thank you very much. Yeah. That looks like a nice hearty stout. Oh man, you are gonna love this stout. Yeah, well, I've had it before. It's just been not since I've been back though. So yeah, um, 
Yeah. Uh, but what Germer did do that was very important, and what he was most interested in doing, was preserving Aleister Crowley's literary legacy. Okay. So, Crowley was extremely prolific. Yeah, yeah. He wrote... There's stuff today that he wrote that hasn't been published yet. Well, and the reason why like, we still have that today mm-hmm. is because of Germer. Oh. It didn't disappear out of the, off the face of the earth because Germer consolidated all this stuff and, 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 and uh, him and Gerald York, I should say, uh-huh. so uh, kind of consolidated it. York put it in the Warburg Institute. Oh. And Germer um, uh, took a bunch of it and, and, and preserved it in his own, uh, where he lived. So that's interesting. I guess that explains more why you were so excited about the Warburg, Warburg Institute. When you first told me that you had gone to the Warburg Institute, I thought you were just bragging because you know how much <laughs> I wanted to go there. But I didn't realize it had all the curly stuff. That's cool. Uh, like it doesn't, like it doesn't yeah. have his entire literary legacy. It's kind of but dispersed of in a, a number of different research institutes. Did you get to look at some of the manuscript stuff? Yeah. Was it awesome? Yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of cool letters. Uh, uh-huh. uh, Leah Hersig, who was a, a major uh, female figure in Crowley's. Um, development mm-hmm. of a magical development in the system her diaries are in there cool um, which I've yet to be able to touch upon that's kind of like another uh, thing that I'd like to do is like there's more for you to get yeah yeah I won't go I won't get into that I don't want to give anybody no, no, ideas <laughs> yeah yeah don't uh, don't, don't take my stuff <laughs> I don't feel like you are allowed to be a one book kind of person I hope not um, because next time I feel like next time you have a book come out, I should come to London for the podcast recording. Well, yeah, you should. Yeah, I don't there's know. tons of stuff you'd like. Yeah, the Elias Ashmole Museum. The yeah, yeah. The we, uh, we t- tons and tons of like Masonic uh, museums. Oh yeah. Okay, but let's not get into that. I okay. have some more questions. Yeah. Okay, so so it's fair to say that like Germer and York were more interested in. Crowley's philosophy than in maintaining his fraternal order well, this, legacy. Well, this is where the interesting part of all this comes comes up, and this is mm-hmm. why I place so much emphasis on publication. Um, if there's if there's none of the literature left behind, you don't have anything. Yeah. So you know the publication and the and the literature and the legacy ends up becoming. It almost takes on its own ontology, its own existence of itself, and it compounds oh, man. all these behaviors of people around it mm-hmm. trying to like scramble to like take control of it. This is something that the OTO should learn from Freemasonry, especially right now, where Freemasonry, so beginning probably in like in the Ameri- in America, starting probably in like the 1820s, after the Morgan Affair, Freemasonry has neglected so much of its literary history. And it's just been in the last 20 or 30 years that we've really started to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. But it's because we have this rich literary history stretching back into the 1700s yeah. that we're able to sort of start to revitalize and bring back sort of the original philosophy of Freemasonry. Right? Mm-hmm. Like it, mm-hmm. it languished for ages because because the fraternity itself started to fail itself. Right. Um, and I think the OTO could learn a lot from that. Well, I mean, hi- we can learn that from history in general. That's I mean, I'm, like look at yeah. look at look at Rosicrucianism. Oh shit! Look, you know when the when yeah. these manuscripts hit the streets back yeah. in 1614. Well, they were kind of it a just hoax. It, it just cre- yeah, but 
maybe. But <laughs> people didn't think that at the time. Right, right. But we ignored all of this. And stuff it that just was going created on. an extremely like fervent yeah. religious fervor yeah. to seek out the Rosicrucians yeah. for centuries. Yeah. You know? Spawned like tons of initiatory movements and mm -hmm. influenced a lot of Freemasonry, influenced mm -hmm. the Hermetic Order, the Golden Dawn, yeah, everything in, in esotericism. Because, you know, these college kids at Turbigan University or wherever it was. It was Bingen? Bingen? Was it Bingen? If you look at a map of Germany, <laughs> they, they were just like, like right down these, the these jokers that, yeah. like, you know. Yeah. Johann Vant Valentine mm -hmm. Andrea. Mm hmm. Uh, Hess was one of them. Mm -hmm. Tobias Hess, I think. There were like five of them. A couple of them went on to do some pretty amazing stuff. I can't remember all their names right now. Um, okay, but all right. So, uh, so this, this is a really interesting period because when Crowley dies, there's there's pretty much most of the OTO is languishing around the world, uh -huh. with the exception of one group. In Switzerland, okay. Um, under Herman Metzger, okay. and then um, in America, there's uh, Wilfred T. Smith with Agape Lodge, which was in New York or uh, California in Hollywood. Oh right, in the forties. So yeah, in the forties, and this is what uh, the um, must have had some the, amazing parties. This is what the latest. Um, um, TV show Strange Angel is uh, based off of is this group in, in uh, California so, in the 1940s the 1950s so that's Jack Parsons OTO Lodge yeah so Wilfred T. Smith was the Lodge Master for many years uh -huh. um, and long story short I get into a little bit of this in the um, in the book uh -huh. but for those who are very interested in this period uh, Martin P. Starr's The Unknown God covers this in great detail. Okay. Um, but Wilfred T. Smith um, was kind of forced to resign as Lodge Master at some point. How come? His reputation. His reputation became strained with like maybe jealous members. Uh huh. Um, other other members who were. Isn't it fascinating? Though that, like Crowley, who dealt with reputation issues, I mean, was <laughs> in turn, in was turn, Smith uh, worse than Crowley? Was Smith like more of a libertine than Crowley, or was Smith more controversial than Crowley? Well, Agape Lodge, um, it had what started developing an atmosphere of um, very libertine, open adultery kind uh -huh. of like uh, things, and Crowley never visited this, so he only he only heard wind of it mm -hmm. from you know the members who weren't actually getting any action <laughs> and jealous, <laughs> you know. So um, you know that's that's kind of simplifying it, but still. Um, long story short, Smith caught the sharp eye of criticism from both Crowley and Germer. Uh -huh. You know, and Germer was um, uh, Crowley's representative in the States uh, at that time. So when, when uh, Smith had to leave, um, Jack Parsons uh, mm -hmm. took over the body. 
Um, for those listeners who don't know, I don't know who wouldn't know about Jack Parsons at this point if they're interested in esotericism and the it's occult. It's hard to say. Can you get podcasts but, under a rock? <laughs> 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 but um, uh, he, he, he developed jet propulsion uh, yeah. technology. I know. He's the reason why we're not on propeller technology anymore. Dude, he's the reason we got to the moon. Yeah, he's the reason we got to the moon. Um, and he's, he's big news right now, so I mean... Uh, but we don't need to... Alright, so anybody who wants to know about Jack Parsons, there's a TV show called Strange Angel. It's based on a book by George Pendle that's also called Strange Angel. Right. Um, so you can go kind of watch that. But you have a story. I have a, I have, I, story. Yeah, I, I have story. a fun story about okay. that. So um, the, the guy in Strange Angel who plays Wilfred T. Smith... Oh um, shit! I didn't, so it's Wilfred T. Smith. Yeah, was the the, the lodge master uh-huh. of uh, Agape Lodge that I was just talking about him before. Yeah. The guy who plays, I guess, the character based off of Wilfred T. Smith, uh-huh. um, Greg Wise. Uh, Is that the name of the actor? Yeah, okay. he was in. Um, he was in an interview uh, recently. Uh, well, before the before the television show aired. He was in a sort of press release interview about, uh-huh. about the uh, program. He said, yeah, I, I visited... He's a British actor. I visited the, um, the OTO Lodge in um, London, and I went to a Gnostic Mass and, you know, had, I guess, some positive things to say about it. Uh, but unbeknownst to me... Um, my wife and I had uh, officiated a Gnostic Mass in, in London um, earlier this year. Uh, her being priestess and myself being the priest in the Gnostic Mass, uh-huh. um, which was open to the public. And I had this crazy experience in the Gnostic Mass. Sometimes it happens, uh-huh. sometimes it doesn't. It really depends on just where you are with the day and yeah. Whether you eat, if you do lots of pranayama, all this stuff. You know. And whether George Weiss gets to see your wife naked. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had a crazy kind of like kundalini-like experience during uh-huh. this mass. You know, I was like, I guess I was just in the zone and I was really, um, really doing it. And uh, unbeknownst to me, I heard later on that um, Greg Wise, the guy who was playing in Strange Angel, had attended uh-huh. that mass. That's amazing. So the mass that he's talking about in that interview was the one that that, well, that, that, I mean, that, possibly, I, that myself and um, and uh, my wife had um, officiated. That's it. kind of cool. I mean, that actually uh, is fascinating. So that was mass. his experience. The guy who plays the priest in Strange Angel. He was there to witness your yeah. experience, right? So that was his experience of the Gnostic Mass, as, it, as me as the priest. So. I, I, suspect, I think that's kind of cool. I think actually that points to a larger connection. Because your portrayal of the Gnostic Mass, including your spiritual experience while having it, was transmitted to him. No, I think he had already done the part. This, oh, yeah, he had already done the part. No, there wasn't any transmission. Yeah, it's not that cool. <laughs> but he had done um, he had done the part uh, he had played and then I think he wanted to go see for himself mm-hmm. what actually happened. Do you feel like that Gnostic mass went really well? I I mean I got positive reactions out of yeah. it. Um, I've only yeah. been to one Gnostic mass and it was close to twenty years ago. So 
I don't remember how many moving parts there really were. Also, it was in Southern Oregon, so I don't know if it was super well done. But the two people who were doing it, it was, um, oh God, what's his name? Uh, Meryl Ward and his yeah. wife. Yeah. Who did the Gnostic mask down mm-hmm. there that I went to? Mm-hmm. It was a, lo- a long standing name. And, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Thalema in Oregon, was, actually. Yeah. 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 He actually, um, Meryl Ward was possibly my first Kabbalah teacher. I can't really recall. I think I might have already been reading about it at the time. So, oh, yeah. He was definitely my first actual human who was a teacher who wasn't made out of a book. <laughs> um, but, yeah. So I, I learned Kabbalah from Meryl Ward. That was ages ago. Uh, okay, so then Jack Parsons, like he's probably, you know, in this particular day and age, most people who have never heard of Crowley or have never been exposed to Thelema or only know of them as words instead of actual concepts, he's their first introduction. And Parsons, I mean, you want to talk about characters like he was yeah. <laughs> he took all of the libertinism or all of the excitement of Crowley's life you know because mm-hmm. Crowley had lots of bizarre experiences mm-hmm. and he condensed them down to a much shorter period of time and just sort of shoved them all into like mm-hmm. like he had a day where he's like holy shit I'm weird and then a day where he's like I exploded yeah and everything <laughs> fitted into this like 10 year period L. Ron Hubbard somehow slipped into the picture L. Ron Hubbard in between. stole his girlfriend <laughs> yeah <laughs> Which is Marjorie Cameron, right? Well, okay, let, well, let's talk a little bit about that story. Okay. So, he met L. Ron Hubbard. He was really impressed with him because L. Ron Hubbard was a confidence man. And Crowley said so. L. Ron and, Hubbard was a... He must have been one of those guys with, like, creepy charisma. That's all I can really think yeah. of. Like, yeah, well, even Crowley, like, you know, wrote to Jack Parson. Oh, no, he wrote to... I think it was Jane Wolfe saying, Jack's gotten usurped by a confidence man. You know, this guy Hubbard is a dangerous fellow. So Crowley picked up on it. Yeah, oh, right away. Yeah, right away. Um, what? So uh, Parsons died in the 50s, right? Yeah, 52, I think. So it wasn't too long after Crowley. There mm-hmm. wasn't a huge gap. Right, yeah. Um, so basically, after Germer dies in 62... Uh-huh. Germer dies in 62... The OTO is already languishing. It's barely even, you know, um, operating at this point. Uh-huh. The group in Switzerland is operating, but Hermann Metzger in Switzerland. And Germer kind of fell into some disagreement. And by the end of Germer's life, he didn't think that Metzger was should be doing OTO stuff, but they couldn't continued on their their activities anyway. Mm-hmm. It's like little small pocket of Switzerland and Zurich, I think, and uh, maybe it's another part. Um, so Germer dies. Okay. And leaves no um, no successor. No instruction. No, no, no heir apparent. Now, he did have a very close student in the AA, by a Brazilian by the name of Marcelo Ramos Moda. There's a very interesting oh. character that comes oh, up. Was that last name Moto? Moto. I don't think I've heard of him. Um, he's a very interesting uh, individual that uh-huh. ends up being um, a real sort of challenge for the OTO as it tries to reestablish itself in the uh-huh. 1970s. Moda cared less about the OTO. Um, than he did about the AA work. Okay. Now, Crowley, before he died, 
had in mind a sort of successor successor to Germer. Really? Germer never formally really thought about it or maybe recognized it. He never contested it either. Uh-huh. I think it was just a non-thing for him. But um, Crowley saw a lot in um, a U.S. Um, uh, military man by uh-huh. the name of um, uh, Grady Lewis McMurtry. Everybody's heard of Grady Lewis McMurtry, I mm-hmm. think. I mean, I'm sorry. Every it's... every weird occultist who's been around for more than a decade <laughs> has heard of McMurtry. Uh, wait, so how does he fit into this whole thing? How did he know Crowley? Well, McMurtry was uh, a former member of Agape Lodge in uh, California. Uh huh. And did he know Parsons? He knew Parsons. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Um. And uh, Crowley was quite fond of him. Uh, McMurtry visited Crowley, I think, uh, on some um, military retirement at some point, because uh-huh. uh, he was a veteran of World War II. Did, um, did McMurtry and Crowley meet during World War II? No, that's what I'm saying, is McMurtry visited Crowley. Oh, and that's how they met. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry, I, I missed that part. Okay. So, uh, Curly was very fond of him, and he ended up giving uh, McMurtry a document that was later called the Caliphate Letter. Okay. That basically said, if things fall apart, uh-huh. I'd like you to reestablish the order in California. Right. Which uh, led to the whole confusing... Era. Do we call it the confusing era? You could, we call it the interregnum. Interregnum. <laughs> it's a nice, but it is a confusing era, and this is uh, basically um, nothing really happens between Germer's death in 1962 and 1969. 1969 being the uh-huh. summer of love and all this other stuff, you know, like lots of activity happens even for Thelema at this point because McMurtry decides. I'm going to restart the OTO. Uh huh. And, and McMurtry is in California. Well, he moved to California in 1969. He was in right. California, and then when things fell apart, uh-huh. he actually was working in Washington, D.C. for a while in like the Division of Labor or something like that. Okay. Uh, and then basically realized I need to do something. Mm hmm. Uh, through his correspondence with Phyllis Seckler, uh, who was another very major uh, mover and shaker in the movement at this point, um, she encourages McMurtry to move out uh, to California so they can both reestablish the OTO. Okay. So this is in 1969. Now in 1975, formally mentioned... AA student Germer Moda, Marcella Moda, uh-huh. publishes the commentaries of L and announces to the world that the AA is alive. And well. Commentaries of L. The commentaries of L. A L. Like, like the, the commentaries of the Book of the Law. Uh, and is that um, available? Can like anybody read that? Anybody can read it. Um, it's out of print. But you oh. can find copies of it. Yeah. It's usually goes for about two hundred dollars at this point. Latin's but it's a it's a it's a really um, 
I think that this particular publication, for anybody interested in polemic history, uh -huh. this is a uh, publication that anybody would want to own um, because it it was the it initiated a sort of dialectic between Moda and the people around him at that time uh -huh. and the people in California. Huh. Which coalesced into a heated battle for legitimacy and succession between Moda and McMurtry. So, okay, but the commentaries of, of Al, that was an AA document. Oh, that was about the AA. It was. Uh, I I think it was more that he he wrote a manifesto of the OTO as well in there. Uh, so the, this is this is Moda saying, "Listen, world, um, I'm Carl Germer's successor, and uh -huh. uh, I'm letting you know that uh, you Thelema know, is existent in the world, and this is without him knowing all these other people." Mm -hmm. Are doing their thing as well. So there's this is a, before he realizes all all of this is happening in California and with Kenneth Grant as well. There's not a clear line, then, is there? There's not a clear line between the OTO and the AA a lot of times. Well, it, there is now because um, all this coalesced into heated court battles. Uh huh. And it was determined in a court of law. Uh huh. Um, who had the rights to Crowley's copyrights? Oh, Jesus. Again, it comes back to publication uh -huh. and the literary legacy. And this is what has substantiated um, who the real the real deal is. You know, I that is just the, that is the most annoying thing about about Crowley's legacy, isn't it? Is the is the infighting like that that sort of like Okay, so but this isn't this isn't like new for uh, it's not new for anybody. For, it's not new for um, esoteric movements. No, it's definitely not new for this. Esoteric movements. This happens everywhere. So, know? what did this do to the philosophy of Thelema? Thelema. Sorry. Well, um, so as the listener might know at this point that uh -huh. this is all like a mess in the 60s yeah, and 70s. it's a mess. It but, becomes a mess. But you've got but a difference what, going on, right? What, like you what, end up, what ends up happening is um, McMurtry and OTO Inc., mm -hmm. if you want to say it. <laughs> if you want to say that. It's a really, like, it's not a good term, but... Um, McMurtry, it's and, McMur McMurtry and Company um, end up uh, winning the rights to uh, Crowley's copyrights. And, okay. Uh, Moda's defeated in court. And McMurtry appoints a number of ninth degrees before he dies in 1985. Uh-huh. Like how many? When you say a number, are we talking like 30? Or like 5? Pro maybe, uh, probably under 30. Mm -hmm. But more than more than 11. And I say eleven because uh, there so were so it's like D twenty plus ten. There were there were eleven um, ninth degree uh -huh. ninth degrees who were appointed by him. Okay. Uh, that formed a council and elected a new leader for the OTF. Nice. 
And was that... Uh, who is now... Frater uh, Hymenaeus... Hymenaeus Beta. Hymenaeus Beta. Yeah. And he's still in charge. Yeah. He must be very old by now. Um, not, not so much. Not as old as you would think. Doesn't have the long white beard or anything. Is it Pokerunian? Actually, yeah, actually, Randy. actually, you know what's what's really cool um, <laughs> about the book yeah. is that um, there's uh, Hymenaeus Beta was very generous in offering some um, previously unpublished photographs of really? himself in in the book. Wait, there are pictures of Hymenaeus Beta. Yeah, I feel like uh, yeah. I've learned uh, several uh, times in the past who he is, and then I've forgotten. So I'm looking forward to getting the book so I can. See pictures of Hymenaeus Beta. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, he was he was very uh, he was very supportive and mm-hmm. um, providing lots of photographs and stuff for uh, the book. Now, the okay. cool the cool thing about HB that we'll say we'll say HB uh-huh. for short um, is that uh, you know he's he's quite sharp on a lot of Crowley's history and literary legacy uh-huh. and. Um, he, in my opinion, he understands quite well, uh, you know, what Crowley's intentions were with everything. So he has, since 1985, helped to not only revive the OTO, mm-hmm. um, but reestablish um, what I call Crowley's spiritual legacy, which is that of, you know how the AA is supposed to function, how the mm-hmm. o- OTO is supposed to function, but while at the same time being progressive enough in his approach to allowing the OTO to sort of flourish on a, on a local, on local levels uh-huh. so that it, so can, they, it, it can have an experimental right. uh, so like growth. A- a local uh, OTO lodge, a local OTO body has enough flexibility to sort of like experiment with the format or experiment with what they're doing. Yeah, what they're going to do in any local uh, area that meets the demands of the of the I local feel area. Like that is something that Freemasonry could take from the OTO and learn a lot from, actually. So you'll find OTO bodies, say, like in um, Boston. Uh huh. They'll offer completely different types of classes. Yeah. Um, you know, the Gnostic Mass will be run the same way. Uh-huh. Um, you know, certain, like, policies and stuff will be run the same way. But uh, how they go about projecting themselves into their local community could be completely different from how Florida does, from how Texas does. You know, so they'll still run the rubric of the Gnostic Mass, and they'll uh-huh. still perform the initiations the same way, according to all the um, scripts and policies and safety procedures and stuff like this. But um, if one group in the Northeast United States wants to do a food drive because it can attract people that way... It's all going to be soggy biscuits. Yeah, then it'll be good. But if another one, like in Portland, for instance, they Uh want to do a bicycle run, you know, (laughs) to raise awareness... Yeah. (laughs) No. <laughs> Can lizards even ride bicycles? <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, this is this is a really cool thing, and and he's done this not only with the United States, but with like all over the world. Uh huh. 
he's appointed people to help establish the local bodies uh-huh. in various cities and even entire countries that have um, like slightly different ways of, of uh, growing the membership. And I mean... The organization isn't huge at this point. Yeah, you guys probably have like fifteen thousand worldwide. I think not even that many. Really? No, not not even that many. Um, it is several thousand strong, like throughout the world, which okay. doesn't sound like a lot. But well, I mean, g- going from the dozen mm-hmm. that were active in nineteen eighty-five. Yeah, that's pretty good. Alright, so that changes my... It certainly changes my perception of the OTO. Uh, which I love. Do you think... Uh, I, w- I want to meet... I want to meet him. HB. He's, he's a nice guy. I would love to meet him. He's, he's, um, he's very easy to talk to, I would say. Do you think he'd be in my podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't think he likes these public appearances that much. <laughs> I bet I could get Law into my podcast. I, I, you know, see, it would be it would be really cool, but there are there are there are a couple um there are a couple uh, instances where he has made public appearances, but yeah. they're not necessarily on the OTO front, uh-huh. but more um, in certain uh, art circles and exhibitions and stuff like uh-huh. this where he tries to put sort of Crowley's artistic legacy. He tries to be a representative for Crowley's artistic legacy and mm-hmm. kind of talks about things in kind of a greater spectrum. Not within just an OTO click, but as a representative of the OTO within this greater uh, understanding of mm-hmm. uh, esotericism and art or literature or whatever it is, you know. He's very academically driven, very very academically minded, I would say, from what little I know. Okay, so it's been it's been you know, seventy years since Curly died. Mm-hmm. Or how but how has his philosophy changed? Like Philema itself, it's um it's got sort of a core philosophy, which we sort of discussed a little bit, but, like, do you feel like Thelema continues to be kind of true to its roots, or has it um, evolved and developed over time? Um, are there things that it's done a really good job at following, or are there things that maybe it has has sort of discarded along the way? Like, what... I think the I think the administration has tried to stay true to the core principles of it by developing like um, certain policies that kind of help to maintain some of the core principles uh-huh. um, I think as the Lema grows and the OTO grows and as we move forward um, you know culture is always changing well of course culture is always you changing. know so um, um, it's going to be ultimately up to the people who identify uh-huh. With Thelema and how they place it into their own personal lives and how they place it into the world uh, that's going to necessarily dictate. And I think you, one thing that 
um, I sort of criticize in the book um, that I've seen a trend in the last maybe three years is uh, um, people's need to want to politicize their mm-hmm. spirituality almost uh, well, I mean, ra- rather rather than rather than um, talk about the work itself and what the yeah. work does for you uh, they they use it as sort of a political engine you know and isn't that a problem that um, that is kind of outlined between the separation between the AA and the OTO though like that's something I think you brought this up last time you were on the podcast well the the AA doesn't too. discriminate along political lines it doesn't discriminate on anything on a mundane level like right. po- politics it shouldn't you know yeah, that, I think that's you really can good. you can be you know you can be a conservative you can be a liberal you have the most outlandish ideas and um the AA will still like say that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Do the work, right? You know, um, and that's I think uh, one of the really positive attributes about um, about that is um, you know these spiritual principles that yeah. the AA teaches is way above these uh, political. Uh, mechanisms and um, the OTO being a social order has a different kind of challenge because it has people mm-hmm. it deals with groups of people right and groups of people when they cluster together form identities you know group identities and you see um, you see politics kind of enter the fold a little bit and um I think one of the more unfortunate things, and again, I point this out, is that rather than focusing on these spiritual principles that the OTO, uh, you know, admonishes, Mm -hmm. um, peace, tolerance, and truth are like is the trifecta. People are more interested in like political consciousness. Uh You know, yeah. Like, are you gonna, you know? Are you going to be against Donald Trump, you know, or are you not? You know, like, to me, these are, this is like very low-hanging fruit on the tree. It's I, not that it's not important to talk about. Well, it's agreed. But it's, it's it not, is, a, but it's not worth getting emotionally wrapped up in to distract you from what are, what the real work and uh, membership in the OTO is, which is to foster fraternity, uh-huh. to foster, um, you know, um, you know, a diverse and tolerant right. culture. To, I, to, to make normal people into initiates in the world. <sighs> you know, like how masonry makes a normal man into a... It tries. A, a, a good man, you know? Yeah, but even in Freemasonry, like, so Freemasonry has, especially in America, has this, you know, thing about not being political, um, and it's pretty strict about it. Uh, that is such a that is such a hard subject too I mean I understand what you're saying like for a lot of Americans right now especially liberal Americans Trump seems like the biggest friggin threat in the friggin that's ever existed Mm -hmm. but it is it's it's a very short sighted thing to be so worried about Trump like 
His reign's not going to last forever, though. It's totally not going to last forever. And as horrifying as it is, and as, as rotten as it is for so many people, for minorities and women and uh, non-Christians, and, like, all of, like it's, it's awful for all these people. It feels like a slide backwards. Mm-hmm. But it's also um, indicative of, of something that we've all been failing at, which is, like, at some point we lost, like, a common understanding with our fellow human being. And, and, and that it's, gap... It's a, it's a, it's a it, it, I see it as a pendulum swing, you know. That's very Hegelian of you. <laughs> <laughs> you have to look things at like a sort of objective, sort of positive thing, you know. I mean, but you uh, have to. There's no other way to do it because we, as individuals, have somebody so... somebody takes political part. You know, somebody mm-hmm. takes political power in the White House. And they're there for four years or eight years. You know, the way the trend has been going since the 80s is usually they take they take it for eight years. And you know, I think I, th- I think I think Bush Senior was the last one that only served four years. Yeah, that might be true. Well, you that know, was so in the long United ago. States. But I mean, the other thing is, like, it always swaps parties, right? Like, you never have. You know, if, yeah, it's if, Republican, then it's Democrat. Even if Trump Republican. only lasts four years, it's going to go Democrat. Like, it's not going to be another Republican taking his place. And it just, it, okay, Statistically, well, right. it would not well, be. Wait, hold on, hold on. No politics. Let's let's get away from the politics. I want to go yeah. back to... Yeah. Uh, As a matter of fact, stuff. we can just, like, you know, yeah. cut that part yeah. of okay, the we, podcast out. <laughs> yeah, welcome back to part three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we talked about... Uh, I still feel so. So this is a, this is an ongoing question that I, I I'm not really sure how to really like drill into this. I, I want to know when Parsons did his thing, uh, and when um, who was the the Smith? So we had like Smith and Parsons and uh, McMurtry were all around at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, McMurtry was kind of a beginner at that point. But but when Crowley died, yeah. did Thelema change? Like the the philosophy is the philosophy still the same? Um, are the changes are are there? Well, I think it was definitely transmitted to the people immediate to him. But did they get it? Now, when some of them died, do you think they got it though? Like, do you think that, like? Curly, I, I feel like one of the reasons... Well, Germer was definitely... Um, I think Germer was too dense of a personality uh-huh. to ever be anywhere near the erudition that Curly had. Right. But he was... He was very dedicated. He was very dedicated and devoted and wanted to keep... keep it strong. Mm-hmm. You know? So, I think... Um, I think that's why he was he was the successor for Crowley. Is that Crowley knew that in any event Germer's not going to um, stop being a Thelemite. Right. Uh, but he was never formally initiated in the OTO. Or the AA. You don't need to be initiated to be a Thelemite. Right? Like it's a it's a it's a it's a religious movement it's a philosophical idea like it, you can you can be a Thelemite without being in the OTO or yeah. the AA well yeah that's true and I um, you know that's another area that I kind of discuss about how Thelema is um, 
extending into a greater dynamic as a spirituality, as a religion in general. Mm-hmm. You know, the most identifiable movement attached to Aleister Crowley's spiritual legacy. Mm-hmm. It's most identified within the OTO and right. the AA as it exists today. But that doesn't mean that the Lema isn't being uh, experienced and appropriated, um, practiced, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. in other forms and other ways in a greater, what I call, O-culture. Right. It's a great podcast. Oh, hold on. I just got a text message from Joey. 43 minutes ago. Oh, shit. Well, he should have been here. Yeah. I know. (laughs) Um... But still, I feel like you're kind of... I mean, so is there a... Is there a... um, Like a core sort of like religious principle in Thelema that has stayed completely constant since Crowley's time? Like, in your your understanding of what Crowley's Mm -hmm. uh, philosophy is, do you feel like it's still ongoing? Is Is his vision still true? Or have we deviated from it? Has there been like a change from what Crowley originally wanted? Like, are we still doing a good job? Well, in my opinion... um, Did he ever know? In my opinion... I mean, he doubted himself from time to time throughout Uh his life, you know, but I think... uh, I think if you want my honest answer and opinion to that, um, when we think about concepts like the new Aeon... Yeah. You know, and the Lama is supposed to be part of the new Aeon. I think, you know, the precept of do what thou wilt... Mm Mm-hmm is in many ways uh, maybe it's not understood by the majority mm-hmm. of the mod, you know the contemporary world but it's certainly lived yeah in spirit right you know through individualism self-expression uh-huh. um, movements that try to fight against oppression mm-hmm. and fight for uh, you know their their freedom and liberty to, to, to be in the world right I think these are all expressions in a way of what like that precept do what thou will is now do what thou will has more uh, initiated um, gradient levels of initiatory uh, importance mm-hmm. you know but even on a basic animalistic level I think that that is the way people the, the contemporary world is trying to operate yeah, you know, there, there's an underlying like desire for um, oh, to be to be free. Shit. You know, I think I just yeah, I feel like okay, I see what you're talking about. I think it makes a lot of sense. So, 
long, you know, to answer your question, I think yes. Even those who have never heard about the Book of the Law, you know, are, 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 are living this, okay. you know. Um, but, you know, there's much more, much more complex initiated levels <laughs> of, of what that actually means, you know. You know, for instance, you know, people I might be people might be living an individualistic lifestyle, mm-hmm. but are they living a disciplined lifestyle where they're heading in a direction of like what their true purpose is? Or are they being individualistic in a way? Yeah, totally. That's absolutely what I was going to say. Uh, yeah. Okay, Keith, we've been recording for a super long time. <laughs> um, I get this feeling every time I talk to you. Like, there's so much stuff that we have to go into. Like, yeah. you have so much friggin' knowledge, and uh, a lot of it is so hard to pry out. Like, I, I, I don't know what I don't know the right questions to ask so much. Mm-hmm. But uh, tell tell our recording device uh, about your book again. Like, just let's 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 cap it. More more book info. Okay. Um, one truth and one spirit. Alice Crowley's spiritual legacy is uh, available through Ibis Press. Um, should be available in December uh, of 2018. Those who are uh, interested can order directly from Ibis. Uh, they can get it off of Amazon. Uh-huh. Um, they can get it at any various book launches that I might do. You know, uh-huh. give you the opportunity to meet me in person. Um, just don't be antagonistic. I'll shut down. You know what? <laughs> There's a legend that if you rub Keith's man bun, he'll grant you a wish. I don't have a man bun. Whatever. <laughs> it's like three inches. From People man can't bun. see this. You know, they're only hearing my voice. They're either going to believe me or you. <laughs> they believe me. They 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 all love it. Yeah, you're the host. You know. <laughs> I don't have okay. a. Uh, December 2018. Do you have any? Um, Okay, and the only scheduled uh, date that you have right now is December 29th in Florida yeah. at a place that I wrote down somewhere. Swirling Star Lodge. Swirling Star Lodge. Ordo Templi Orientis um, in Pompano Beach. Okay. Florida. Yeah, in Florida. On December 29th. And uh, I'm doing some pre-talks. I'm doing a talk in the Netherlands, actually, uh, before that in November. I sure hope some of my Dutch friends hear that. Say, what the hell did he just say? It means, means, how lucky that this canal is so comfortable. (laughs) But I don't say it right. I was, when I was learning Dutch, uh, I never finished learning Dutch, but a friend, a Dutch friend of mine was like, you need to. Here's a sentence that has all of the sounds in Dutch that you can't make right. <laughs> Say it over and over. So I have. But I'm probably doing it wrong. I barely learned a lick of Dutch in the two years <laughs> that I was there. Very difficult language. Um, it's actually one of the. Easiest but man, I love the Netherlands. It's of, one yeah. of my favorite European countries. I mean, it's just so welcoming and nice and this is our lovely fade out segment you know where after you did your book thing we're just gonna like yeah. fade the black well, I, never, I never said anything about the stout we could end with that oh okay how's that stout Keith sorry it's really good it's got a lot of coffee notes <laughs> okay so Keith what are you drinking I'm drinking uh, the organic survival stout by Hopworks 
Ooh, that sounds delicious. And it's got a lot of um, oats. This even says quinoa. Oh yeah, it totally has quinoa. It has seven grains. Seven grains. Huh? Yeah. I taste a lot of like espresso and uh, coffee. And stuff. So it turns out it doesn't matter how many grains you add to a thing, as long as it's got coffee in there, that's pretty much gonna win. Yeah. Or if you burn some stuff. So so stout uses. Uh, uh, it, it, yeah, burn it burns yeah, the uh, yeah. yeah the oats and stuff. It's really good. It's delicious. I mean, it's it still feels like a late summer, early fall here. So a yeah. stout isn't the, the the best thing right this second, but it's still delicious. Yeah, it's still that's one of my favorite beers here. But I, I mean, this is something I would definitely warm up to when it was cold and rainy and lonely. <laughs> and dark in Portland. Oh man, oh man, it's the air. <laughs> right, thanks, Keith. It was such a pleasure to have you on the podcast again. Yeah. I hope that this happens over and over and over. But I, you know, next time, next time in London. Yeah, I hope so too. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> Thank you for listening to my alchemical bromance. You can find us uh, in your favorite podcast player. We're on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and all of that great stuff. That's my cat, Kubla. Say hi, Kubla. Anyhow, you can find us online. You can find us on our website, myalchemicalbromance.com. And you can support us through the Arnomancy Patreon campaign. Just a dollar a month. Super cheap. It's totally worth it. If you've been listening to the show and you've enjoyed it, then I think you should totally leave us a review. Uh, go on to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Leave us a review. Tell your friends about us. Help everybody find out. Um, I've been really happy with our growth over the past year, and it's all because all of you listeners have been so great. I love hearing from you. Please send me feedback. You know how to find me. Uh, please go forth and conquer and have a great day.